Welcome back to the 38th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories. With the midterms behind us, we're going to be talking about the GOP strategy to use Santa Claus to attack America, the ongoing battle between Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell on monetary policy, and how the left needs to better message on the issue of crime. And of course, we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. But that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into our daily debate. So like I said, with the midterms in the in the rearview mirror here, where do both parties go? Neither really seem to have a clear plan or you know, with how tight the election was, they don't not seem to have a clear mandate either from the people as to what direction they should go. And, and the first thing they need to address, of course, is inflation. So basically cut spending. But as I'll explain here in a little bit, that, you know, I don't really see that coming. That never really comes to fruition. They always make a big stink about it, and then they go to when the deficit conversation comes up with the debt ceiling and then they always raise it so you can't really expect them to cut spending at the end of the day so like i said where do they go from here where do you see them going from here i'd love to hear your opinions throw them down in that comment section and hopefully i can go through read some respond to some all right so our first article today comes from the new york post The U.S. economy is at the mercy of Jerome Powell and Janet Yellen. So, inflation has again become a very hot topic as the midterms have closed. You know, Democrats were willing to acknowledge, finally, that there's something that needs to change. Now that it's no longer a political issue that will get them booted out, and one that they are actually willing to address, they're starting to talk about it a little bit more, talk about their plans to deal with it more than just the platitudes. And obviously, you know how you had Joe Biden out there discussing how they were dealing with inflation. Lots of Democrats were pushing the Inflation Reduction Act, saying that it was going to reduce inflation. But they weren't giving their plans to reduce inflation in the future. They were just pointing to some of their previous actions. So now we're starting to have this conversation come up in the media again, and a lot of different media outlets are ready and willing to kind of come down hard on the Democrats and actually speak to some of these issues and ask the questions that they weren't necessarily willing to ask before the election. And I'm not trying to be outright mean to the media companies. I understand at the end of the day, there are lots of other issues that go into an election and there's lots of other things to cover. But I do always find it interesting that a lot of these hot topics get kind of dropped or at least put back in the the background, in the back room for a few weeks leading up to the election, the ones that definitely would make a certain party lose if they were to bring them up. And, you know, behind the scenes, there are lots of differing opinions on how they're actually going to tackle inflation in the Biden administration. Quote, Fed Reserve Chair Jerome Powell and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen are engaging in a tug of war over interest rates, sources say. On Yellen's side are more liberal members of the Fed, including the ambitious, climate-obsessed Federal Reserve Governor Lal Brenard, who spearheaded the stealth overtake of the board by progressives over the past year, 
while Powell is determined to bring down inflation by hiking interest rates, as central bankers around the world traditionally have done. Sources say Yellen has been counteracting his efforts with the assistance of progressive doves of the Federal Reserve, who background journalists that there might be a slowdown in rate hikes, leading to roller coaster market rallies, end quote. And what the author is getting at there when they're saying background journalists, they're saying that the assumption or the thought process from a lot of people in journalism, or at least the author's perspective, is that Yellen and her administration are going behind Powell's back and they're telling journalists, well, well, there might be a, a small de- decrease in the rate hikes. They're not saying that they're not going to continue to raise the interest rate, but rather, oh, but we might do a half percentage point instead of three-fourths of a percentage point this time. And it kind of is meant to spur the economy. If certain investors hear that, they're like, okay, inflation might be coming a little bit more under control and we haven't hit a recession yet, at least by the official White House definition. So it kind of encourages these investors to go out and spend money. They believe that the market's going to recover, that, oh, things are starting to turn around. And that increases speculation, and therefore more people are willing to put money into the market because they see, you know, oh, wow, it's having a really good week. Look at that. From Monday to Tuesday, Monday to Wednesday, it went up. I might as well jump in on Thursday and Friday. And then the Fed comes out and says, nope, we're definitely sticking to our interest rate hikes. And then the market crashes a week later. So, and I say crash, it drops back down to where it was, maybe below where it was. So these kind of backdoor conversations that some believe that Yellen and her team are having with journalists are actually, they're trying to keep the market from completely collapsing and making it a very hard landing when we go into recession. But it also is counteractive because Jerome Powell wants the market to crash. And I don't mean drastic crash all the way down to the bottom. But as we'll explain here, he really wants to put us into a sharp recession and then start the recovery process. Because that's the only way to truly tackle inflation, to drop the U.S. economy into a recession so people have to save their money rather than go out and spend it, meaning that companies are going to have to lower their prices in order to entice those customers to come back out. And therefore, that will lower core inflation. That's the thought process, at least. And that's the historical thought process. And that's why a lot of people are criticizing, or at least this author and a few others that I have read, are criticizing a more liberal, soft-landing approach that you might see from Yellen and her team at the Treasury. Because at the end of the day, though that sounds nice, a soft landing sounds amazing, it doesn't seem to hold with historical trends. Then again, the Democrats completely bucked historical trends by their marks. They didn't get completely booted out of both houses when they have a president who has a approval rating of 44% going into the midterms. So they bucked those historical trends. Maybe they can buck these ones. I mean, maybe Yellen has something going on. Maybe she has some great economic theorists with some great models that say something different. But history shows that we have to slow the economy by raising interest rates and possibly go into a recession. So basically, Yellen wants to push the consequences back a little bit while Powell wants to get the problem out of the way. He wants to throw us into that recession real quick and then start the recovery process. And the author kind of speculates that Yellen could also be doing this and having this position because of the political nature of her job and her appointment. 
she's trying, the author is speculating that she's trying to shore up things before 2024. Basically, she's saying, okay, if we can keep the crash, if we can keep the markets at least stable or going up and down and just yo-yoing for another two years, which is a long time, remember, if we can keep this speculation streak going, keep everything from crashing for two years, win the presidency, then we can truly address the issue. And, you know, that's a lot of speculation on the author's part. And they don't necessarily come out right and say it. They kind of walk around the fact that they're yelling could be thinking about 2024 and how it could look for President Biden and other Democrats and then pin it on Republicans. So, you know, they're not necessarily saying, oh, it's a it's a terrible cabal. They're behind the scenes trying to screw over the American people until they can get reelected. But they are saying to some degree that there is a political motivation here and that that's very irresponsible. You need to do what's best for the people that voted you in, but also the uh, people on the other side of the aisle. You need to do what's best for the American people. You're representing the American people, and you're there to protect their interests. At the end of the day, if you have a truly liberal view of government, you are there to protect and aid and provide safety, security for the people. So why would you make it harder on them? Why would you push the consequences off when it could actually make things worse? The longer we sit in this yo-yo period where we don't have a crash, then the more inflation goes up, the bigger the crash is going to have to be at the end of the day. So I think it's a little bit irresponsible on Yellen's part. Quote, while Powell is raising rates, Yellen is considering buying back treasury bonds, says Brent Johnson, CEO of Santino Capital who understands the Fed's internal dynamics. This could counteract Powell's efforts and potentially spur inflation on. Rallying the markets defeats Powell's efforts to combat inflation, but the tug-of-war has ensured that the stock market did not crash before the midterms, giving voters the perception that the economy is healthy, delaying company layoffs and share price uh, falls. This unusual power struggle between the Fed and Treasury looks as if it will continue delaying and likely exacerbating the eventual hard landing, says Johnson, end quote. And what I think is really interesting here is he says that the stock market doing well before the midterms gives the perception of the economy being healthy. And as I discussed in a podcast, I believe it was two weeks ago, the stock market no longer truly reflects the U.S. economy. I mean, at the end of the day, if the stock market is down, the economy is probably doing really bad. But just because the stock market is up doesn't mean that the rest of the economy is necessarily up there with it. So I think it's interesting that he said the perception. People kind of look at the uh, the markets and they say, oh, whoa, my stocks are up today. It must be a good day in the market. The economy must be doing well. When they're so untethered from reality at this point that that doesn't necessarily hold anymore. So... Powell's approach, like I talked about, is unfun, it's uninspired because it's, you know, historically driven and historically proven to do the job. And Yellen is kind of meant to keep the fat cats and the Wall Street boys happy for a while, if I had to boil this down into one sentence or so. But the author, you know, in a less cynical moment, highlights that the U.S. Treasury officials might think that we can still have a soft landing. And if they truly believe that and they can make us have a soft landing, more power to them. But at the end of the day, I don't see enough evidence for that. Now, am I an economist doing the models in the background? No, I am not. 
But at the end of the day, I have not seen modern monetary theory where we keep taking money out against ourselves in hopes that we'll have money in the future, which is what buying back these U.S. treasuries is. I don't ever really see that working out well for us. So we'll see how everything pans out. I've spent enough time on this this tug-of-war battle between Yellen and Powell. Let's get to our second story. This one comes from Ross Story. Republicans prepare to attack America with Santa Claus. And yeah, if you were confused by that headline, so was I. The author is referring to the, the two-Santa strategy, where Republicans act like Santa, giving tax cuts to people and the mega corporations when they come into power after they win the midterms, after they win the White House. And then cry foul when the Democrats try to act like Santa when they start boosting their social programs, welfare, Social Security, Medicare, Obamacare. And then they raise the deficit each time, even though both sides are complaining about the other spending or tax cuts or so on and so forth. So that's the, the basic side of the two Santa strategy. It does go a little bit deeper than that, and we'll discuss the history here soon. But I think it's a, a very cynical way to look at U.S. politics. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying it's a very cynical way to look at U.S. politics, which is both sides are actively opposing one another and just saying they can give away free things to America. I think that the politicians that offer these things, and they're not necessarily free because you are paying for them with your tax dollars, but I think the politicians that want to put in place these social security, uh, welfare, or Medicare, any of these type of welfare programs are genuinely, for the most part, deep down in their hearts, they believe that these programs are necessary to help pull people out of a terrible situation. And I believe that a lot of Republicans truly believe when they're proposing these tax cuts to help small businesses and big businesses grow and spur economic growth, that they're also helping pull a lot of people out of terrible economic situations by providing them jobs and so on. So I think the author here is very cynical. And of course, when you're in Washington for too long, that happens. And of course, I can be cynical myself at some points. But I think at the end of the day, whether both positions are well-founded in fact and borne out through statistics, I think both sides have a approach that they want to stick to, that they believe better relates to their core philosophy, core worldview, and they genuinely want to help people get out of their city situation. It's just like I was describing in the last one. There's not a secret cabal. Oh, cabal. Oh, we're going to give all these people all their money with the tax cuts, and then we're going to complain when the Democrats get in. I don't think there's a giant cabal. Now, that may be an actual political strategy, or that may just actually happen every single time that Democrats get in and Republicans get in. But I don't think that, like I said, there's an evil cabal back there saying, oh, this is the plan, this is how we're going to do it. You all have to go on Fox News, you all have to go on CNN and complain about this within the first week of the opposite party getting into power. I don't I don't think it's that, that evil. Uh, but maybe, you know, maybe the author can convince you otherwise. The author argues that they spend, they, you know, they spend, they spend, they run up the deficit and it caused debt to increase and then they leave it for the next party to come in. Specifically, they're referring to the Republicans here saying they leave it for the Democrats. Quote, the debt crisis, that is, 
that they themselves created with their massive tax cuts and wild spending. Do whatever it takes. Shut down the government, crash the stock market, damage U.S. credibility around the world if necessary. It will force the Democrats in power to cut their social safety net programs and even the crown jewels of the New Deal, Social Security, thus shooting their welfare of the American people, Santa Claus, right in the face, end quote. But the author does fail to mention that the party, you know, neither party has really stopped or even slowed spending in the past 12 years. The author does, of course, he he points to Clinton as an example of a responsible Democrat who got control of spending, but neither Obama, Trump, Biden, or Bush have had a surplus like Clinton did during his administration. But, you know, this strategy does go back before Clinton. Quote, Republican strategist Weninsky, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing his name, first proposed his two Santa Clauses strategy in the Wall Street Journal in 1974 after Richard Nixon resigned in disgrace and the future of the Republican Party was so dim that books and articles were widely suggesting that the GOP was about to go the way of the Whigs, a political party in England that basically fell apart, if you don't know. There, are genu- there was genuine despair across the GOP, particularly when Jerry Ford couldn't even beat an unknown peanut farmer from rural Georgia for the presidency. Wininski argued back then that Republicans weren't losing so many elections just because of Nixon's corruption, but mostly because the Democrats had been viewed since the New Deal of the 1930s as the Santa Claus Party, end quote. And I think there is something to that. The New Deal put in a lot of policies that were meant to help the working class. FDR really encouraged the expansion of unions. It was a time when a lot of, there were a lot of realists and there were a lot of liberals in politics. And I say realists and liberals. Realists are national focused people that view the world as a power struggle Uh, if you have more power, then your enemies will attack you, so on and so forth. And we had a lot of liberals who said collective bargaining, being together as one, collective security, that's the way to go about our presence on the world stage. And those ideologies, they actually trickle down into American politics as well. There's the realist who will say, you need to pick yourself up by, just like they say, a nation is responsible for itself. They would say a person is responsible for themselves. An individual is responsible for their situation. Whereas liberals might come down more on, no, it's society's duty to help these people. And that's why you saw a lot of reforms from a very strong liberal government throughout the early 1900s about unions protecting workers Uh, allowing different social programs. So there was this idea that they were really looking out for the little guy, and that's why they had gained a lot of traction coming out of the 1940s, out of the Great Depression, when they put in all these policies that were meant to help workers. And you can argue about the benefits or the negatives that it brought the economy, because obviously something wasn't working out great by the time it got to Jimmy Carter. But... The, que- the it wasn't in question that they were perceived as the Santa Claus party. So the Republicans had to come up with their own strategy. And the one that really worked for the next 50 years is 
okay, you're going to propose welfare programs, we're going to propose tax cuts. And though it may not help everybody as much as certain welfare programs will, it will encourage the businesses to, at least in their thinking, it will encourage businesses to hire more people, be able to retain more of their earnings so then they can improve their technology and then help America prosper, create new technologies, allow us to export, be a global inventor, a dominator of the market, so on and so forth. So the Democrats had their welfare baby, and now the Republicans have tax cuts. And though it's not explicitly stated this way, I would say those are the two Santa Clauses. You either get certain handouts from the government that are meant to aid you in your process of coming out of the hole that you're in, or there is the tax cuts, the other Santa Claus, that is meant to allow you to have the ability, if you so choose, to go out and attain and gain that extra money that is now in the economy because certain corporations and businesses are paying less in taxes. And that at the end of the day, they're both the same thing. There's more money out there in the economy for the people. But one is given directly to the people because the government is seen as a way to support those people. And the other one is allowing, giving the people the opportunity to go get it themselves. And that really speaks about the worldviews of liberals and conservatives at the end of the day. So you can see how even though it may be detrimental in how both of these policies and these Santa Claus ideas have permeated American politics and how it affects us today, you can at least see at their roots there is something there that relates them back to their core body politique, essentially. So I think that at the end of the day, though, it is not good now. It's not necessarily misguided, and it's not as cynical as this author would like to make you believe. They're, like I said, it's not like the Democrats were over there saying, oh, we're just going to give them free money. We're going to give them tax credits. All the single mothers, yes, we're going to encourage single motherhood. It's no, we want to help single mothers because at the end of the day, they have a harder time than a parent who has a significant other who can help raise that child. And the Republicans aren't over here. Ah, uh, yes, we're just going to give tax cuts to the big corporations. Mwahaha. They're thinking at the end of the day, okay, we want to encourage these corporations to keep more of their money so they can hire more people, create better things, bring more good products into the American economy and encourage spending that way. So like I said, good intentions, the consequences just aren't exactly what they necessarily were planned to be. But we can move on from all this more, I know I kind of got lost in the weeds there, but we can move on from that and go to the last article before our daily delight that comes from the Daily Beast. The left needs a better message on crime. For years, some on the far left have been calling the politicians to defund the police. And some politicians themselves have joined on that bandwagon, though they have left it behind now. But the midterms provided a wake-up call for anyone still saying defund the police. Quote, last week's election was a grim reminder of how much juice conservatives can get from putting crime at the forefront of voters' minds. Sure, Democrats are jubilant about holding on to their paper-thin Senate majority, but they lost the House. 
what happened in large part because while the red wave turned out to be more of a red trickle in the country as a whole, there were parts of New York State where the election results really were a bit like a scene (laughs) were from the elevator doors opening in The Shining. Republicans took all the House seats on Long Island, made huge inroads in the suburbs north of New York City, and Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul won by way too close a race against a wacky election denier. The Republican campaign in New York was all about crime, and it was mostly a winner for them, end quote. And the author points out that very often people on the left, they say that they want to defund the police, but they're only thinking one step at a time. They're not thinking ahead. They're kind of driven by emotion. They see these terrible accidents happening on the television. They hear these terrible statistics. And then they are driven by emotion to say, oh, well, we have to defund the police. And they're not thinking ahead of time. They're not saying, okay, if we defund the police, what happens? Do crime rates go up? Do crime rates go down? Are people encouraged to go out there and riot? Are they encouraged to go out and steal things because there's no one to enforce? Okay, once you answer that question, if violent crime does go up, then how do we resolve that? Do we have a community watch? Do we have uh, social workers that go out and try to defuse the situation rather than arrest people? What kind of enforcement mechanism do we have if we decide to get rid of police officers? And though this author is a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, he calls out his cohorts, His that makes it sound bad, he calls out other party members saying, we can't actually defund the police. We haven't thought this through. And he offers some solutions near the end that we'll get to. But at the end of the day, he's saying it's a lot harder than people assume. You can't just say defund the police and expect things to work out properly and for crime to go down. And in order to address the issue of crime, the author suggests a different tactic slash approach. Quote, a better approach would be to emphasize that many the many good policies that the left supports have been that have been proven to reduce the rates of violent crime. Most obviously, tightening requirements for handgun purchases has, quote, yielded dramatic reductions in firearm homicide rates, end quote. More interestingly, Policies like minimum wage hikes and increases in the earned income tax credit that funnel more money to people who need it must have been shown to reduce recidivism rates among ex-convicts. Unsurprisingly, given the role of addiction, mental health problems, and financial desperation in fueling various kinds of crime, increased access to health care has also been shown to have a salutary effect, end quote. So this, this really does sound nice on paper, but it also sounds like a laundry list of policies that the people on the far left, especially those in the Democratic Socialists of America, which, like I said, this author is a member of, uh, it, it sounds like a laundry list of things that they want passed and that have a small, maybe, you know, thin, razor-thin connection to violent crime. Oh, well, if we give them a uh, minimum wage, if we give them certain subsidies, certain uh, welfare programs, it has a small effect on violent crime. But at the end of the day, if we're removing the police, if we're trying to take steps to lower violent crime and eventually get to the point where we can get rid of the police, you can't just have a small decrease in violent crime. You have to have a 
program that practically eliminates violent crime altogether. And when it's not fully eliminated, then you have a social system, a network of people who are going to call out that person and basically send them away is going to what's the word I'm looking for here ostracize them from the group and say okay you robbed Billy Bob Joe's shop well you can't be in our community anymore you're ostracized we won't talk to you you would have to have that strong of a social fabric in order to not have police because then people would be dissuaded from doing terrible things because they would be ostracized and they wouldn't have access to their community anymore And even then, that's not enough because we live in America. You can drive to another state and start a whole new life. You can go to a whole new place. So at the end of the day, being ostracized still wouldn't have the same effect as having police. There is no way around it. We need police. Now, if they're reformed, if you want to make new tactics, if you want to have them trained a different way, then we can have that conversation. But you can't outright get rid of them. And what about the statistics coming out of Texas that show that Communities with open carry policies for guns have lower violent crime rates. I mean, that doesn't disprove their first point about limiting handgun sales, but it does, you know, at least lend credit to the idea that you can't just have, oh, gun restrictions. That's going to fix violent crime because people that are going to get illegal guns or are going to commit crimes are going to get illegal guns either way. But, you know, that doesn't really fly with their narrative. At the end of the day, like I said, this is a laundry list of progressive policies that they want to pass anyway and have a very small connection to fixing violent crime or at least having some effect. So they're saying, well, look at all these things we can do to help violent crime. But also, remember, we do want them passed anyway, so we're going to push for them either way. You know, that's why And there. I know in the last article I said you can't be too cynical. I am being cynical on that one. I acknowledge that. I acknowledge my bias. But at the end of the day, if someone comes to you and says, oh, I have a great deal for you that's going to fix a small issue that, you know, it doesn't it doesn't really address it at its root. It doesn't address the problem overall, but it has a small, small effect. And at the end of the day, they're getting money for it or it's better aiding them towards their goals and it helps you a little bit, then I'm, I'm cynical about those policies or those proposals for some of those policies. All right, to move on from my cynical self, let's get to our daily delight. This one comes from the Hiddenston Times. Video of lazy cats sliding down the stairs is too funny to miss. So have you ever just sat down on the stairs, maybe when you were a kid, and glided to the bottom Maybe you were just feeling a bit lazy, or maybe you just wanted to spice things up a little bit. Well, this cat took that to the next level. Quote, captured in this video going viral online, the video shows a lazy cat's bizarre method of going down the stairs, and it is sure to bring a wide smile to your face, and her antics might even prompt you to watch it repeatedly, end quote. And this definitely made me think about all the times when I was young and I was sliding down on the wooden stairs on my butt. You know, it hurt, but it, it was fun. And also I was lazy, so I, I, I could say that as well. Quote, the video opens to show a gray and white pet cat lying down on a staircase. It then traverses down the stairs head first while it's on its side and then extends its body to push itself down the stairs like jelly. End quote. And it really is a, a cute video. And, you know, for all you people that are a little bit lazy out there, it will inspire you to try some new things when going down the stairs. Uh, 
If you want to see any of the cute videos of this little guy, or if you want to read any of today's article, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. And also down there is my Twitter handle, at Your Daily Flip. I try to post something daily or retweet, quote tweet, just basically a, a quick way to get people informed without them having to listen to an entire podcast about it. And also on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I post links to the podcast so you can come directly here. All right. With that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.